I am Summer Stahlbomber here with Jesse Schnabelin, and we are here with um, Cindy and Rick Boozy. Rick Boozy is the owner of Kaya. Um, Rick, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, uh, Cindy and I have been married uh, 27 years. Um, we met in church 28 years ago, and uh, I met her as I was working as an electrical engineer. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in electrical engineering. And um, we have four daughters, three of which just graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, two of them are moving on to college. One's taking a gap year, and then we have a 14-year-old who desperately wants to be 18. <laughs> um, I remember that. <laughs> about 18 years ago, we realized that we couldn't have kids, and so uh, we kind of started down the path of adoption. And, um, and so anything with adoption or orphan care has been a, been a huge part of our marriage. And... Um, so about six years ago, I was working on a board of directors for a nonprofit here in Fayville, and we went over to Africa to build a chicken farm. Um, the orphans that we were working with in Africa um, weren't starving, so it wasn't the starvation challenge, it was malnutrition. Hmm. And our, our vision was, is we would go over and build a chicken farm, um, and that would provide uh, two eggs per day for each of the 375 kids that were in the orphanage. And, we would salt in that malnutrition in, in that orphanage. Um, that's since replicated itself 33, 35 times. Wow. Um, and so that project went really well. But in the midst of all of that, uh, we were over there over Christmas break. It was, like I said, six years ago. And um, we were driving down into the slum every day. And um, there were two vans. There was 11 of us on the trip, um, a lot of co-eds from, from the U of A. And... Um, the, the, the building of the chicken farm went much faster than we thought. In fact, a couple days in, we were done. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd, you know, we had planned to have two weeks over there. And so in the midst of all of this, we started being kind of driven around the countryside. Um, the two pastors that we were hanging out with were definitely wanting us to fall in love with, you know, with what they were doing. And, you know, we had a heart for orphans already. And so... It was the end of the second week, and uh, we were driving down into one of the slums, um, slums just where really poor people live, and there's six slums in Kampala, and we uh, would stop at set of railroad tracks on the way into the slum every day. And uh, I was, you know, there were kids, and there were families living in these tin shanties in the, in the gutters of the railroad track. And for the first two weeks, you know, it was sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the second week, I had... I had um, started to get homesick. I was definitely ready to get back into my own environment. And uh, the night before it had rained, uh, we didn't have any air conditionings in the vans. So the windows were down. And as we stopped at the railroad tracks, just this overwhelming smell of human stench and, mm. and just hopelessness just overwhelmed me. And I just started to cry. And um, there was there was nothing I could do. I was sitting, um, Uganda is an old British protectorate, so it wasn't a colony, but it was a protectorate, so there's a British influence. So I was sitting on the left side of the seat as a passenger, and I was just like, I just couldn't take it. And uh, I just had to do something. And uh, and so for the next week, I was trying to get out. Uh, at the time, I worked for Dell Computers, so I ran enterprise sales for Arkansas and Oklahoma. Um, I had about 11 customers, very comfortable life. Uh, we worked our tails off, but very comfortable life and in the midst of that last week it's just like what can we do and so um, we had been given 50 bucks a month to the orphanage 
it was obvious after that first day that 50 bucks a month would be like driving down you know, College Avenue throwing dollar bills out the window. It was never going to make a difference. Um, and so my heart just started to go, what, what could we do? What could we do? And, um, and so as I got on the plane to fly home to my family, um, being a good Dell employee, I had two laptops, so I hooked up to the Internet. And on the 31-hour journey home, I, I started to look at what were the natural resources of Uganda. And the first one was coffee, and I know way too many coffee roasters. The world didn't need another coffee house, mm-hmm. right? Second one was cotton, and, you know, I'm not a textile guy. Give me a bale of cotton. I don't know what to do with that. Third one was tea. I hate tea, so that was out. <laughs> and the fourth one was cacao, um, which is what we make chocolate from. And I said, that's a great idea. We're going to build a chocolate company. <laughs> um, and so 31 hours after that kind of epiphany, I, uh, I get home and, you know, I, I tell Cindy the story. Hey, I want to build a chocolate company and, and help these orphans over there. So that's how we got started. Can, Cindy, can you tell us, like, from your, like, from your end, like, what was that like? hearing about and like (laughs) what was your initial feeling you know well we both do share the same heart for orphans we have four adopted children I don't know if you said that Mm -hmm. yet but um and it's just it didn't surprise me because we had already had a business and before a couple of businesses before and we're both entrepreneurs so I really wasn't shocked right um I said okay we'll get what you need and start making chocolate. Awesome. <laughs> and so yeah. I have to admit, he made the worst chocolate ever. <laughs> it was greedy. It wasn't good. But, and he used a, uh, what do you call it, mortal and pestle. Okay. okay. <laughs> but um, as time went along, you know, you have to make those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And he perfected it, and I was impressed. And he's actually a better cook than me. And so I knew he would figure out that recipe because right. he can really taste those flavors. And that's a gift he has. And so just... Um, by continuing to do that and uh, making the chocolate, I think it's the best I've ever tasted. And yeah, I would just agree kinda, with that. Yeah, <laughs> we were in our house for two years and started selling it, and it just seemed to work. And mm-hmm. just kind of have learned as we've gone, and it's been six years now, so we're still growing and growing pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I said yes. <laughs> and I agreed. I, I take her on wild adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I um, you know, one of the things that that I truly believe is that we can do anything we put our minds to. And I think I think that came from from my parents and from Cindy's parents yeah. that, you know, degrees are important uh, for most of the world in the corporate world, right? It's a it's a it's a stamp, it's a badge of honor, right? right. You you can't get in the doors of a lot of companies without a, a degree of some right. sort. But I don't think that's where it stops at. Mm-hmm. I think when people have vision and people drive to that vision. You know, I think anything can be done. And I, and I agree. I made a lot of bad chocolate. We made about 100 bad batches of chocolate <laughs> that first six but months. But you have to. When we've learned, I've had a, my own business. I'm an interpreter for the deaf. And so I had oh, wow. interpreting service before. And you just have to, you, the only way to do that is to learn by your own mistakes. Right. And, but I think it's the best way to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think it had to happen, you know, so you could see how the processes work. The first year, some of the remembrances that I were like etched in my mind. My dad, my dad who, who loved me dearly, who who was my one of my biggest fans. My dad's like, son, this is a bad idea. Oh no. Oh, like, no. like son, you, you know there's a chocolate company called Hershey. Like, you, you know what you're walking into. 
And, and I knew I knew up front that as we were putting together, after we figured out how to make chocolate, what, what would a business plan look like? We knew that it couldn't be the Hershey business plan because that's how you get stepped on and crushed and mm-hmm. thrown mm-hmm. to the curb. And so, but you know, Dad's saying, "Son, this is not a good idea." Um, and Dad later on, you know, said some other things that were very encouraging. Dad helped me kind of perfect some of the things as a, he was a pharmaceutical executive. And so every once in a while I would go to him and say, Dad, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. And he'd go, oh, just do this. <laughs> and, you know, you'd be like, that just saved me like, you know, six months worth right. of work. He's like, Dad, we should ask me earlier, son. <laughs> I think the other thing that, um, you know, you, you, you watch all the, the Mark Cuban, the Shark Tank stuff, and you see all these overnight successes. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, you could look at us and say we're an overnight success. But I can tell you that that first two years, mm-hmm. you know, I, I used to joke in a lot of my presentations mm-hmm. in the, the last slide is 4 a.m. You know, and people are like, what does that mean? Says, well, a lot of times it was the time I went to bed or it was the time I got up. Mm-hmm. Like, real entrepreneurs, the ones that are really, like, doing things that are different and not just copying right. somebody right. you get to those times where you know you're in the middle of the night and you're gut checking yourself going is this really worth it I remember right. we lost one of our machines and this was like year one it was about six months in yeah. it, was, it was it was a time where the machine was down and nobody nobody knew how to help there's there were no chocolate makers in Arkansas there was there was like you couldn't dial up 1-800-CHOCOLATE and get somebody <laughs> to help you and, I, man. <laughs> yeah, and it was like yeah there was no yeah yeah, Best Buy wouldn't send anybody over. None of the Geek Squad knew what to do. But, but, but that's, that's where Rick, I don't want to interrupt, but that's where you are. He's an engineer. Yeah, that's right. where your skills come in. And he doesn't give up, and he's going to figure out how to fix it to move on. Right, right. But I, I remember a couple of those really hard gut checks at four going, okay, if I quit, this yeah. dies. And yeah. I remember, yeah. like, at year two and year three, there were a couple hard things. And it's like, if this, if I quit, if I go home tonight, this is over with. Like, mm-hmm. it's up to me. And and not that I'm super smart or I think part of it is just this grit that, you know, sooner or later we're going to figure this out. It's one way or another. I, I think so many words have come up here. Your definition of success, your definition of failure, your definition of entrepreneurship and grit, uh, which I love. And I want to ask this, um, our theme this, leader, this season is leadership. What do these things have to do with each other, if any, at all? Well, I think, you know, leadership has a whole bunch of different versions. I, right. I think I grew up in church, so the, the version of leadership I heard was servant leadership. Right. right. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think when you think of that, it's like you, you have to paint a vision. Where are we going? Right. Because right? as a team, whether it's two people, you know, a husband and a wife, or whether it's, you know, uh, a, you know a class, or whether it's a football team, or, or it's a business, or it's a Fortune 500, there's got to be a vision. And then you've got to be able to clearly, and we talked a little bit about this on the drive up, you have to clearly communicate where we're going. And you got to make sure everybody's on the same page. And, you know, one of the things I remember at, at Microsoft, I had a boss, and this boss was, was, was an amazing guy. And he said, undercommit, overdeliver. He said, if you do that, if you do those two things, you will be wildly successful at Microsoft. And, and those things to me lay out a lot of, of the leadership that we do is, is, okay, that doesn't mean we don't take stretch goals. It means we don't take risk. No, we take risk. But what we do is, is when we make a commitment to somebody, you know, if I make a commitment to somebody, we're going to show up. We're going to do what we said. Even if it's, you know, kind of a super Herculean behind the scenes. I, we joke when we went to Hawaii about 20 years ago, I bought this cool little duck 
Um, it was a, like a like a porcelain duck. And the caption on the duck said, smooth as silk on the surface, paddling like hell underneath. <laughs> and and that's that's the story of our lives. Like we try to be not cool, but you know, it's mm-hmm. like it's gonna be okay. But underneath, man, we're hustling our butts off. <laughs> and I think I think leadership is about showing that to everyone else, being there, like, you know, not just barking out orders and walking away. But at the same time, it's painting the vision. This is what we're gonna do, this is how we're gonna do it. And then you know, I got the privilege to be on the Microsoft Xbox startup team. There were 1,500 people on the team. It was an amazing, amazing thing. And I, I wasn't a developer. I ran operations. So I, I had a, more of a supportive role, right? There were a lot of smarter guys that built the code and built the box. My job was to make sure they all landed on time for, for holiday launch. And I remember us plan A and plan B and plan C. And we had out to like plan G. And we went through every plan because every one of those in the midst of this multi-billion dollar startup failed. Hmm. And and the smart guys that were leading us were like, okay guys, if this goes wrong, we pull out plan B. And and they literally, as we were pulling out plans D and E, they were making plans F and G, they were keeping ahead of us. And so having that ability to say, we're not gonna quit, and, and failure, to me, I agree with Cindy, failure is not necessarily a bad thing. What failure does is teach you what not to do the next time. You know, the, uh, the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over <laughs> and over again, expect a different outcome. I think it's not doing that same thing the second time, right? right. At least learning that part of it. So At the same time, it doesn't mean that you're not going to go through those emotions okay. of, try, you know, of um, up and downs and crying. I mean, you go to your room and you cry. You do what you have to do. Right. But you come out strong. And you come out saying, I'm not going to give up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not... I'm going to keep going and keep pushing through. That needs to be the end result. But you definitely are going to feel emotions. You're going to be mad at yourself. You're going to be upset. You're going to be mad at people. Mm-hmm. But you've got to let yourself feel those. And you got to cut, let them come out before you can get to the other side. Yeah. And I think this question that Summer had come up with about, you know, uh, basically it, it took you six months and a lot of money mm-hmm. and, about, you know, 100 bad batches of chocolate so like how, how did you keep yourself motivated yeah. because I feel like it I, I don't know if I would do this but I feel like you would get so discouraged at times you would you be do. like how long do, do I do this yeah you do I remember this this is no lie so a lot of students coming out of college when they do a startup or they hang out with a crew that's in that early phases right or hyper growth phases Right, you, you don't have the, the the responsibilities that we had. I mean, I had a wife that I'd been married to for, you know, for over a decade. I had four kids. I mean, you have sorry, uh, <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, but they were young, and, and, and you know, we owned a house, and so there were there were real honest risks that we could lose things. And I think over the years, one of the things that taught me is that those they're just stuff. You know, at the end of the day, a house. Yeah, it's nice to have a roof over your head. Um, but at one point in one of our other startups, you know, I, I was, I was fearful. I was afraid of failing. And Cindy said to me, he goes, what's, what's your fear? Mm-hmm. And it was one of those really like, like, you sure you want to go there? And she's like, yeah, ask. I says, the fear is you'll leave me. She says, well, I'm not going to leave Silly. you. So, <laughs> so you can bag that one. What's your next fear? <laughs> and the next fear was we'd lose a house. Right. And, um, 
And, and to be honest with you, to be forthright, right, we went into foreclosure. We almost lost the house mm-hmm. at one point. But she said this this was her response to we'd lose the house. I still believe it. <laughs> Waiting on my pool. She goes, she goes if, if we lose the house, we move into an apartment, the apartment has a pool, I finally get the pool you promised me 20 years ago. And so, you know, she's like, okay, so that fear is not valid. So that's what's true. the problem? And um, and I think that's having support and ability to, when, when you are breaking down or when there's not a lot of hope there, it's yeah. it's having, you know, Someone who's your cheerleader, mm-hmm. and and saying, "Look, we'll get through this." And, and you don't move. We don't move on any decision unless we both agree. Right. Because if you do, then it's just going to cause issues. Mm-hmm. We learned that a long time ago. <laughs> and you let other people in, and they kind of become the owners. Right. So that's something we learned really quick and the hard way. Is you have to be in agreement. Mm-hmm. We both have to agree on these. And I mean, even the little issues. We have to, at the same time, we have to give each other space. Like I have my certain jobs that I do in the company, and he has his. And I don't have those skills that he has, and he doesn't have the skills that I have. So we have to also give each other that space. Right. We learn that right. as well. And sometimes but, we try to give those jobs back to each other. <laughs> That's true. But, but I think the reality so is we, we all have kind of strengths, and yeah. we play to those strengths. And, and because we're a good team, the, we kind of know where to put those not even walls, but kind of where to hand off back and forth to mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to say too, just to add on about the leadership is, um, I have just I, I don't know through the years um, when I we first started out years ago in a bit small business, was um, I I wasn't really the strong one. He was, and I didn't think I could ever get there. But I learned that you do have to be strong, mm-hmm. and you and you do have to go through that process of learning to be strong, learning to say no, when to say no, mm-hmm. um, being consistent with what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, if it doesn't seem to work, then how can you tweak it? How can you, but you still want to have that consistency, you know, right. and uh, to, um, you found your niche, you don't give up and say, well, it's not going to work and go and move on and change and do something else. You keep going. Um, the other thing is just constantly being, being innovators, and I think mm-hmm. you've already said that. You know, working, getting out of the box. Okay, this didn't work, and it's not going to work, or we can't make this right now for this company. What can we do to tweak it to maybe make them still get what they want, mm-hmm. but um, but make it a different way? Right. You know, yeah, I think think bigger, out of the box. Yeah, and I think that's you know my my release. Although there hasn't been a lot of time in the last year or so, my release is playing piano. And so oh, wow. Cindy jokes because I play the same song over and over again. <laughs> but but what song, can we ask what song? It's my song. It's I don't blue. know. It's, oh, I grew up playing la- blues and jazz. And so, you know, when when I come home from work, you can pretty much tell how I'm feeling by what I'm playing. I'm either banging on the music, which means I'm probably <laughs> jazzed up, or I'm playing something soft and slow and I'm probably, you know, frustrated or sad. But okay. but it's how I release at the end of the mm-hmm. day. But to me, playing piano is very similar to making chocolate, and I think anything. It's creative. Right. Like, why would we do chocolate in Arkansas? Like, because <laughs> well, no one's ever done it, and it's right. cool. And, you know, I didn't realize walking in how many different varieties of chocolate there were in the world. And so, to me, it's like, let's do that. Let's not just be the biggest, right? Because we'll never compete with those big kids, right? right. Um those kids at Walmart and Target and all those big mass merchants, that, that's a whole different game, right? Mm-hmm. Let's do something really excellent. And, and, and let's stay in that lane 
versus trying to swim out into the big lanes where you know you're going to get crushed by an oncoming ship like a hundred ton Hershey mm-hmm. ship. Um, so that's that's kind of how I I kind of chill out. Um, right. I love to. And it sounds goofy, um, but, but honestly, um, you know, my dad just passed away a couple months ago. My second biggest release was to go out and mow the lawn. And it's because with the tractor, and in fact, I have a giant zero turn, it's, it's just all the noise is gone. And I can right. just kind of think. But now my dad has passed on his big tractor to me. And I went out and mowed the lawn in the backyard the other day. We have like seven acres. And it's just, it's quiet. It's like right. even though the tractor's roaring, it's like, it's so peaceful back there, and you're just mowing. I mean, you're just brushing right. but, um, but I love that. I think it's right. that one time where there's not any input coming into me. I'm not having to make decisions. I'm just kind of enjoying the ride. But so that scares me. No. <laughs> <laughs> because that's where he creates and innovates, like he right. said. And No, but he, seriously, he'll come back. He's an innovator. He'll come back in and have these great ideas. And on the practical side, that's why we work well together. Right. Okay. So if you ever, when you get a partner and if you're mm-hmm. not husband and wife, and your partner's in a business, I will say your skills do need to come, you know, your oh, skill sets will be different. You right. need to appreciate that in each other. At the same time, you don't need to be scared to push back. Right. Because you have a, if you have a visionary, a dreamer, and you have a practical side, another person who's practical and detailed, then you got to learn how to work together. Mm-hmm. And it's there's times when I say, no, I don't agree, period. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and then we have to work through that. And, Sometimes he pulls back. Sometimes he has to pull me into the dream. So I'm yeah. a different guy than I was 30 years ago. Um, but I, I can tell you this. I, I love to make things. And I think that's a lot of my dad, which is at mm-hmm. the end of the day, we make things. And so in sports it was, okay, you know, if you ran up 50 yards, you know, for one game, you want to, I want to run 51 for the next game. It's just I want a little bit more. And in manufacturing, that's exactly what's going on. We just want to, okay, we made, you know, we made 100 bars this first month. In fact, the first week, we made 20 good bars. We made about 200 <laughs> bars that week. We made 20 good ones. It was ones. great. Was, we thought it was amazing. We did. Um, <laughs> and they were thick and brick. I mean, they were just really too thick. You could barely break them. And, and but they tasted good, good, right? They tasted really <laughs> tasted good. good. They did. You know, and six years later now, we're at 20,000 bars a month. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we're wow. like... You know, we're not, we're just getting started, but I can look back and I can say, okay, that was six years ago. And that was a really happy day. And so we do. I mean, we, you know, the team, we'll we'll throw a pizza party or we'll have a little, little downtime. And that's like, okay, what can we do next month? Like what, it doesn't have to be some goofy goal. Like, you know, we want to do 17 million in sales (laughs) next year. um, Like a lot of the dot coms Mm -hmm. can, right? Because they can scale that fast. I mean, we really make things. So it's got to go a little bit slower, but there is that, I want to make a little bit more. I want to mm-hmm. do a little bit more. And so that, I think that's what drives me. Well, you started Kaya to obviously help people and give back. So can you touch on that a little? Sure. Um, sure. So um, when we started out the process of what were we going to do, we said, let's take 10% of our profits <laughs> and let's pour that back into the places that we source from. So the, the so then as a, you know, a, as a, a guy who run the logistics organization for Microsoft, I, when we were starting to look at pulling things back from around the world, cacao has grown in 85 countries that I know of. Okay, um, I think there's more, um, but we haven't seen all the countries. And once you get down into the low tons, it doesn't end up on any export-import record because it's just not enough to worry about, right? So, so I said, let's let's go pull. So one of the visions, right? Let's pull from 40 countries. 
let's bring back chocolate from 40 countries, mm-hmm. which even as we sit right now, we're at 16 countries, I cannot find another chocolate company in the United States that has more origins than we do right now. We're not the wow. biggest, but the most diverse. Hmm. And again, something unique, again, because I don't just want to copy you know, the guy in front of us. Um, but we said, I don't believe that the farmers actually get in a fair shake. That was, mm-hmm. a, that was a hypothesis. So on our second year, um, I decided to take my two oldest daughters. So these were uh, my, my two daughters that were turning 15, and uh, I took them on a two-week trip. We got their passports, and uh, we ran down to, um, to Guatemala for the first week. Um, and then just based on the, I had a bunch of frequent flyer miles for my days at Dell. Came back to Miami, and then we ran down to Ecuador for another week. And it was kind of showing the world. Um, the, the most valuable part of that trip was actually when my daughter, we were flying back up to Miami on the, on the, the last trip home. And we were, we were on the plane. She says, Dad, I, I get it. Hmm. I, I, I'm never going to whine again. I get it. We're, we're very rich. And we're not Aww. rich. We're comfortable, but we're yeah. we're not rich. But <laughs> compared to, but she saw comparing. the rest right, of the world, of and, and you know, to me, I paid for the trip right there, mm-hmm. right. Um, but but while we were down in in Ecuador, we'd had a meeting with the little village that we were working with, and we said, hey, guys, you know, we want to work together. And these guys there are thirteen farmers in this little village, and they're like, we don't want to work. And this one guy was like, really not even willing to talk to us. Hmm. And the way we got to Ecuador was I had a grad student at JBU messenger me before Messenger was part of the Facebook integration. <laughs> he messaged me, he said, I went to school with this friend of mine in Paris whose father lives in Quito, whose son lives in Machala, whose brother lives in La Virginia where the farm was. Hmm. He says, would you be willing to consider pulling cacao back from him? And I'm like, I think so. I couldn't even follow at that time. We Skyped a couple times, and that was the trip. Yeah. We, wow. went, we went down the trip, and um, we flew into central uh, Ecuador, and then we took a three-and-a-half-hour drive down to southern Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And then on about the third day, we met with this, this village, like 13 families, right? And um, they wouldn't talk to us, and the interpreter, who was the guy that the GBU guy had gone to school with in Paris, was interpreting for me. We weren't making any headway at all, and, I, and we had agreed we wouldn't talk about price. And I found, like, we got to do something. Right. And I said, uh, ask them what they're getting. Ask them what they're getting. And um, so the, the farmer said, I'm, I'm getting 31 cents a pound. And, and he, it wasn't a, he was proud of it. He was like, I, I make 31 cents a pound. Well, fair trade was $1.14 a pound. Mm-hmm. So right then and there, I knew he wasn't getting even fair trade. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like most supply chains, when you have anywhere from three to 10 people in the supply chain, it's just the stack up and the number of people. Well, my job at Microsoft was to simplify the supply chain. That's <laughs> what I did for six years. Wow. Yeah. I literally just got rid of excess. And so <laughs> I said, what does the model look like? And we said, well, we need the farmer, we need an exporter, we need an importer, and we need me. Well, I know how to be an importer of record because I used to do it at Microsoft. I had people that helped me, but I could, I could figure out how to do that. Right. Um, we found a we found a good exporter on that side because you got to have the permits to get stuff out, and then the farmer. And so we went from ten to three, hmm. and then we split this we split that money with each you know we split it half and half, and so 
guy made a dollar sixty three a pound, which was mm. five times right. what they're making before, and that's when I realized like we had a model that would work. Mm. Now it doesn't work in every country. Um, you know, we've had some that have been highly successful, like Ecuador. Some haven't worked out, um, and so. You know, of the 16 chocolates that we import right now, we started, we've brought in actually 25. But some of them just haven't made the grade. Either the relationship's not there, the product's not good enough, it's not consistent. There's other things that that are kind of outside our control. But I still think that vision of 40 is is realizable Mm -hmm. over the next, you know, I was thinking 30 years, but I'm thinking probably like 10. But to answer your question on the short haul, we're allowed then to give them almost five times what they're making through Mm -hmm. normal channels. So, you know, the, the reason or the way I equate that to we, we do this with a lot of school kids every week is, you know, what, what do you make as a part-time job at McDonald's? You know, you'll get the 8 to $10 an mm-hmm. hour. I said, okay, so what instead of $8 an hour, you're making 40 bucks an hour. Would that be of interest to you? And they're like, 40 bucks an hour? <laughs> you know, yeah. and half the class is cheering or whatever. And, and it's like, that's what we can do in these little villages. Yeah. Right. So we can make a difference in these, what I think are these 40 small little villages before we go home. Mm-hmm. So we tell our customers what we need you to do is buy from us mm-hmm. and that consistency so we can grow because the more we can grow, the more these we can help these farmers. Right. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of chocolate companies will buy from one origin, mm-hmm. which is not right. a bad thing, but what happens is then you're stuck with that one origin right. and it actually happened yeah. to us last year. We. Yeah. We, uh, we, we've used Uganda from the beginning because it's the home team. Mm-hmm. And we dried up on Uganda in early, was it early May? It was May or June. We yeah. stretched it till July, and we went one month without chocolate. Mm-hmm. And we're like... We made it work. We made it, we made it through it, but we said we're never going to depend right. like, like too much on one origin. One, yeah. And so part of the reason we have the multiple origins is that if something happens geopolitically or a tsunami mm-hmm. or... You know, a volcano. Once you know, if that happens, we're not sitting here without a company. Mm-hmm. So that's our vision, and we really are careful not to lose our vision as we grow. We want to. Get, that's why we're here is to grow that vision mm-hmm. and to um, be able to provide for these farmers. Mm-hmm. What uh, <clears throat> I want to ask about this, I think you've touched on some of it, but you know. Why a business? So why not a nonprofit or why not missions? Why is starting a business a good model for you know engaging in social responsibility or community impact? Yeah, and I saw this question and I think it's it's a great question. And here's the thing. I hate fundraising. <laughs> I, yeah, that's it. Right? It's a great. That's fair. That's a I mean, very fair point. <laughs> I, I, we owned a restaurant called World Garden, and our vision was buy, you know, you buy a meal, and we give a meal, you know, downstream. And we were constantly like that was the the message we were communicating. You know, kind of like tacos for life, which I don't think is a bad model, but. Right. Over time, it gets really tiring to go, hey, buy another meal for me, you know? Right. And and it's like, why don't we just make money, mm-hmm. not be ashamed of making mm-hmm. money, and that way I don't have to go knocking on 100 doors every month going, you know, I don't know if Mary is going to be able to be with it this month unless you give me $100. And, and it's like, why don't I just take care of my own needs versus writing letters or doing another mm-hmm. fundraiser? And so that's why I did it. Well, and you're tired because you're trying to run a business but we also had that 501c nonprofit alongside mm-hmm. with the business and it just it doesn't we've learned we learned from that it doesn't really work well together and then people come to you thinking well you you're a nonprofit mm-hmm. why aren't you helping us you know right, or, right. or instead of 
it just didn't seem to are your business growing you know it just didn't seem it kind of confused people right okay. so we thought we've got to do one or the other and we chose business mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not right or wrong just no. what we chose no i asked because you know we have so many business students and i think that there's this feeling and i'm not sure if it's new but it seems to me that like a lot of younger people are purchasing from companies that are doing this kind of work and also interested in doing this kind of work with their companies. Meaningful work. Meaningful work that has an impact, but from a business angle. And so I think it's really interesting to see a really successful and interesting and impactful Mm -hmm. model. And I'm just kind of thinking like what... I don't, I don't, I don't really know like how business students would view something like this and like what they can learn from a model like yours, which I think is awesome. Because we're really yeah, just building economies all we're doing. Right, right. I mean, the reality yeah, is, right. I'm over there. I buy something from you. I right. come home, make right. something from it. It's, right. it, it's, it's a, a mechanism to to build economy on both sides of the water. That's mm-hmm. a good thing. Sometimes yeah. other approaches don't necessarily build on the far side. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and we're able to. We're also helping on the other side locally. I mean, we're. We're, we're hiring more people. We're getting ready to hire mm-hmm. in the fall. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not only helping the other countries, we're helping in our own country. Mm-hmm. We're helping in our own state. Mm-hmm. We're helping know? our little town of Elm Spring. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're helping Northwest Arkansas. That's <laughs> wonderful. So it, it feels good, and it's, um, I feel like that's what we're supposed to be doing, you yeah. know, just helping the community. Um, so I think sort of, with a lot of business students, one reason you go into business, and this isn't the main reason, but one reason people go into business is because it's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a safe major to go into. It's a safe employment to go into, mm-hmm. sort of. Um, so what was it like for you to leave a successful company, a safe company, and kind of go on this entrepreneurial path? Um, and what was it like when you actually decided, like, all right, I'm going to do this? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I think what you get in a big company is you get lots of process. Um, you know, in a bigger company, it's been successful for some amount of time. And so you, you, get, you get a lot of experience because you're in an engine that works. Well, you know, I, I say process, but you, things have been figured out, right? Somebody's blazed the path. I, I use the analogy, you know, there are people who land on the beach there are people who take the beach and there's people who go inland. And each one requires a different set of skills. Hmm. And if you watch, you know, Dunkirk or any of those movies where they're they're taking the beach, each one requires risk, but they're different skill sets for each one of those. I think what I learned at Microsoft and Dell and Baxter Healthcare was this set of processes that work, right? But the downside of those big companies is you can't be a risk taker very often inside those companies. I was really blessed at Microsoft to get a lot of roles where I was the fix-it man. They would send me to go fix things up. But it was because I had learned pretty quick in the first two years about how to do stuff. And so mm-hmm. they'd say, hey, this is broken. We need you to go to fix it. I think the entrepreneurial is the creative. It's the you're blazing a path. You're, you're landing on the beach. You're taking the beach, right? But the, the go inland stuff is the bigger companies. You know, that the fun is landing on the beach. It's taking the beach. I mean, there's no more fun than making something work. And so, you know, now that I'm a little bit older, I think I see kind of different seasons in my life where some of these make sense, some of these don't. Some of this, you know, I was better at when I was younger, some of them not. But I think the fun part 
is the entrepreneurial, right? It, there's no rules, which means there's no net. You know, if you have a boss and you work for Tyson or Microsoft or Walmart, they're not going to let you fail because if you fail, they fail. Mm-hmm. When you're an entrepreneurial thing, man, you can jump off the side of the net all you want. <laughs> you jump right off the edge of the trampoline. Nobody's going to catch you because it's your job to, to protect yourself. I think that's where I flourish the most. I think that's kind of where the fun's at. Um, now, the, the, the true story. <laughs> so it was about two years into to Kaya, and I was working from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. for Dell. I would come home, and we would make chocolate from 7 p.m. to about 2 or 3 a.m. Oh this was every day of the week. It was hard. Yes. And I'd get a couple hours of sleep. I'd go back on the road, and I'd made a decision that every night I would drive home. So I would be, my territory was Arkansas and Oklahoma. So I'd leave Oklahoma City, or I'd leave Little Rock, or I had a couple of customers around here. I didn't have Walmart at the time, but I, I had most of the four corners of the, of the two states. <laughs> and... Um, I was just dead tired. I wasn't doing either job right. And Cindy, one night. Well, I was going to say there was nights where I would be up there molding the chocolate. So you learned how to use your own equipment pretty fast. Mm-hmm. You do what you got to do. Right. So we were both just exhausted. So Cindy said to me one day, she says, You're not doing either job well. She says, Pick one. It's true. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, You know what that means. She says, Pick one. She says, You know what I'm going to choose. She's like, Well, let's just get it over with, you know? And so I, um, so this was mid April. And I turned in my resignation to my boss at Dell. Um, my boss lived down in Texas, in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. And he said, look, I, I know you're running ragged. And, and he knew about the chocolate company. He knew it was off hours. But, you know, he knew. And he's like, I think you're just tired. Why don't you just take a couple of days and think about it? So I took a couple of days and came out and said, I, I think I'm going to turn my resignation in. And he says, no, I, I don't want you to. You, you know, you've, you've done a great job. I want you here. You're, you know, you're a key part of our team, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he says, why don't, why don't you take a week? And uh, this is early May now. And so um, so I, I took a week. And all I could think about was, like, we could think of the, think of the difference we could make in this mm-hmm. world. Like, I could die tonight. I could die in 40 years. I could die in 60 years. But, but I could, you know, I could go away. Where's my passion at? Mm-hmm. And this is a key part of being an entrepreneur is if you're not passionate about it, you will not get your rear end out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. You will not be there sometimes crying over a machine because you're like, I don't know why it doesn't work. <laughs> the instructions say, you know. And, and, uh, and as an electrical engineer, my first job out of college was building robots. So I knew how to build and make stuff work. But um, I, I took another week, and then it was time for kind of my annual review. My boss came up. She said, let's talk about this. You know, I know you're just tired. And I'm like, I'm really serious. And he's like, I'm not taking your resignation. Oh, no. Um, and so at the end of the third week, Brian finally realized I was serious. I was, I was going to turn my resignation. And so turned it in. The last day was May 31st, June, or May 30. I can't remember the dates, but May 31st, I think. And then June 1st, I walk into our shop where we were making chocolate up in Elm Springs. And I sat down at my desk, and this overwhelming fear came over me. Like, what did I just do? My, I just left. A very comfortable job. Like I worked my tail off, but we got compensated pretty well at Dell for doing our jobs. And and I, I literally was like, oh my God, what did I just do to my family? And I'm freaking out. And on my phone was a voicemail. And I remember going, I don't remember that. And and so this is like seven o'clock in the morning, right? First day after you resign, you know, and you're like, 
what was I doing? And so I pick up the phone, and it's Celebrate Magazine. And it was Wiley, Elliot, the, the editor, and he left me a message. It was the night before. He said, hey, this is Wiley. Could you call me back? I really need to talk to you something uh, in the morning. It's very important. And so hung up, dialed the phone, said, hi, this is Rick. And he's like, hey, I'm Wiley. Um, I'm the editor of Celebrate Magazine. I said, I, I know the magazine. I, and he goes, um, you've been selected as one of the top 14 to watch out for in 2014. Um, would you be interested in accepting the award with the other guys? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's just this, just, yeah. just this calm. It was a blessing. It was a huge blessing. It was this confirmation. Yeah. Just this peace came over me like, okay, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. So I want to add to that too. I think um, as Rick talked about fear, the fear is real. Um, you know, quitting and jumping off. We call it jumping off. We jumped off the cliff. And we've done that more than once. The cliff, yeah, it's not as far anymore. <laughs> it's not a far drop. Um, but I think, you know, as as um, our beliefs are, I mean, the, to me, the women's, the women, I have, I, I pray with a lot of women, and the number one fear for women, uh, number one emotion for women is fear. Mm. Because, you know, if you don't have that money coming in and that right. security, or the security, I guess, and fear, if you don't have that security, then it's fear, it's hard, you know, and then you're, um, you start to get panicky. And, and I did a little bit too, just like Rick did, but because that happened quick. That was good. And then man, too, feeling significant. So if you feel like your business is not, you know, doing well, mm-hmm. then that's a really big attack, and you've got to pitch hard on, but mm-hmm. hard through that. But, again, those emotions are going to come up for sure, mm-hmm. and you've just got to push through them together. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, too, is it's also timing to me off the cliff. Um, I know when we had World Garden, I mean, we... We looked at each other and said, we'll never do this again. <laughs> and that was like the second or third time we had said that. Two years later, we started kind of. <laughs> I think it's often really scary for students to consider the concept of failure. Like if they don't have the job when they graduate, if they don't get the degree in the time span that they thought you were, they were supposed to get right. the degree or you know, the internship or whatever it is that they, you know, and myself being you know, not graduated and stuff like that, I've already realized in the short amount of time that life is very curvy and it's not as straight in there. This isn't what I thought I would be doing, you know, several years ago. But life has this really strange way of, like, putting you in places that you need to be mm-hmm. and building skills and giving you bruises, which I really like that analogy yes. um, because it's really useful. So I, I'm really glad that you guys have framed it in this way because I think it's really important for students specifically to hear yeah. Um, that it's okay to get, it's okay to go in a different direction, right? Or it's okay to, for the road to wind. And, and you have to remember, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So, right. like, for example, um, how you're actually, you're still being successful even though you feel like you're failing. Because I can tell you mm-hmm. there was one girl that worked for us named Chloe who started, who um, it broke her heart seeing the homeless because we helped feed the homeless mm-hmm. with our restaurant. And we started, helped to start soup kitchens and um, what it was, it, the community gardens. And there's, there's a, some of them still going and still doing that. So that is a success. And, mm-hmm. you know, we feel like, but this one girl started, what was it, what was it called? Three bags in two days? Mm-hmm. 
and you know and just started making these bags and, and taking them to the homeless people to mm -hmm. wherever they were and and as far as I know she there's somebody else took over that but that gave her like a whole new entrepreneur right you know being an innovator and um starting her own business and mm. now she's ventured off into some other things similar to that mm. and so you just cool. never know how what how you can be used right. to help other people and so you've got to keep your um that open and not and you know you can't let those negative thoughts come in and mm -hmm. think you're a failure and you just don't know really what's going on behind the scenes right. some of it we didn't know until later on you know how how um we help people do that you just right. don't know yeah, one of the guys that, uh, you know, I have a sheet when we bring kids to the shop. I mean, we talk about making chocolate and stuff, but the other thing we talk about is, is, is really this entrepreneurial kind mm -hmm. of whole genre. And, um, you know, one of the guys that my dad um, shared with me, you know, when we were going through one of the first, like, businesses that wasn't going real well, it's like Henry Ford. You know, and everybody, you know, do you know Henry Ford? I'm like, yeah, and he goes, you know, he failed four times before Ford Motor Company. And my comment to Dad was, Dad, I, I don't want to fail four times before we're successful. <laughs> um, he says, well, son, I just realized all roads, as you said, aren't straight. Mm -hmm. you, you might have to bend and curve a little bit. And, and I, I, I remember that because, and, and Cindy's exactly right, just because we don't think we're super successful, that, that passion, that spirit, that, that juice that, that you yes. start to... You know, to spin off because of what you're doing inspires others. And it's like, I mean, this is probably the coolest time in Northwest Arkansas, right? Mm -hmm. Because all the big kids are, are doing really well. Mm -hmm. But then there's this whole entrepreneurial vibe. Mm -hmm. There's all these people that are working together and they've created all these new products and new companies. And I think there's just this, and I think a lot of it is the generation that's rolling in here that wants to know that it's not all about the almighty dollar. Like, right. I'm going to spend my buck, but I'm going to spend it where I want it to be used in a way that honors right. the money that I made, right? And so you see a lot of that in the companies that grow. We're not the, we're not the only one for sure. Right. But it's that ability to say, look, I'm, I'm going to make a difference with the little chunk of the world they've carved out for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's just kind of how we've said Kai is going to be. Um, so what advice would you give students or others thinking about starting their own startup maybe or following their passions or their dreams? Well, you know, um, I've, I think to Shark Tank a lot on this one. Because um, if you watch the guys, the guys are, they're, they're very discerning, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of times you have someone with a passion but no product. Sometimes you have a product but no company, right? And and you can easily get fooled by the friends and family, which I'll call them, the, it's your fans, it's your support base, to say, oh, that's awesome. And so they all buy, you know, if you make a pen, they all buy the pen, and you're like, they're buying it out of sympathy, right? They, they don't really <laughs> want the pen, but they yeah. want you to feel good. And, and so you buy the pen, and, and then you take that next step, and, and it's like, why didn't that work? And it's mm -hmm. like, because you didn't put some folks around you that are willing to tell you the honest truth. Mm -hmm. Like my dad, right? Mm -hmm. My dad lovingly telling me, son, are you serious? Um, so, I, so a couple things come to mind. One is, you gotta have passion. If you're gonna start up a company in today's startup environment, you gotta be passionate. Because you're not the only one doing this. I guarantee you there's probably 50 others doing the same exact thing mm -hmm. somewhere else around the world. And that's the difference between now and 30 years ago. It's 30 years ago. It'd be somebody in Mississippi or Alabama or, you know, maybe somebody in Memphis. 
today, somebody in Pakistan or somebody in, you know, in India, that the world is much bigger because technology has allowed us all to, to be able to do things and be competitive. Mm-hmm. I think that the other thing is, I use this mentality, it's a, it's a Microsoft-y mentality too, but crawl, walk, run. For a long time, we made chocolate in our house, in our kitchen, because I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't have a business plan. I was like, I'm going to help that orphanage. That's what mm-hmm. I'm going to do. I don't know what it looks like. You know, I, you know, I haven't formulated the sales plan, although I was a sales guy for 30 years. You know, I didn't know how to engineer or operations it, although I spent time in operations. It was, it was like, let's just see if we make chocolate. But I, I think a lot of times what you've got to understand is, do you have a business Mm-hmm. And is it something that you can make a profit at? We ran our restaurant. The whole idea is to scale this thing up, but we never got through right in the middle of starting the restaurant up, the recession came. Mm-hmm. And it was like we couldn't make a profit. Mm-hmm. We we broke even day to day, but we could never generate number two. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea was a thousand restaurants across the country all doing the same thing, right? And so didn't have to be wildly profitable at one because we were running on a chain. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't have the profit from the first one to get you to the second one, it didn't make a lot of sense. So I would say crawl, prove out the theory, right? Get some advice. One of the places that we spent time with is Startup Junkie. Um, Startup Junkie, Jeff Amron and those guys, you know, they'll happily sit down with any entrepreneur and walk through your story. They're, um, they do some cool stuff. They're funded by the SBA, so the Small Business Administration. And so they'll sit down with your, with your idea or your vision or your passion or your product, and then they'll, they'll help you formulate that. I think the other thing is there's a network of entrepreneurs around here where you can go find some other folks to say, hey, what do you think of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you've got to crawl. Like, you know, the grandiose plans is I'm going to raise a million dollars and go knock this out of the park. It's just a recipe for mostly disaster. And we have a couple of those in Northwest Arkansas mm-hmm. where they raised $100 million and it's all gone. Mm-hmm. And so you've got, you know, you've got the crawl um, because then once you start walking, you can kind of see it and figure out and adjust, right? Because we're not doing the same thing we were doing six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we still make chocolate, but Better. it's radically different than six years ago. <laughs> That's yeah, amazing. That's true. That's true. Now, I, I was going to add to that and just say, um, have, it's going to take more money than you think it is. Mm. <laughs> so you've got to be prepared. Number one, are you going to be able to live on almost nothing? Because that's going to happen when you first start out. Mm. You know, if you need to move home, you know, whatever it takes, you need to know that, hey, you know, you're probably not going to have that much money to live on at the beginning. So you need to think about all that and have everything in place. Number two, I know um, Rick didn't mention it, but I think as business majors, you guys know this, that you need to have a business plan. Mm-hmm. But you don't just write it once. You write it over and over, and you tweak it, and you show it to somebody who you can trust because as the other advice I was going to give is you don't give away your secrets. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this will be our last question, mm-hmm. but um, can you tell us about a leader in your lives who has inspired you? Mine would be, I'm an interpreter for the deaf, that mm-hmm. uh, it was my career for years um, before we started our, before we had kids and started mm-hmm. our account businesses, but you know, just, just real, there's a few deaf men that I had just been around that didn't even let that, um, I wouldn't even call it a disability, but just wouldn't let that deafness stop them. Mm-hmm. And I just really looked up to him. I worked alongside, and not only interpreting for him, but teaching class, signing his classes. And they help 
they helped me grow my business and just really were really supportive and I just saw them being so successful and you know just watching them they really mentored me mm-hmm. and they didn't even know it so yeah, that's that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I think I know this is cliche but I'm gonna say my dad mm-hmm. um, my dad retired as an executive vice president at Allegan Pharmaceuticals uh, my dad was the first to graduate from college um, and he went to he went to LRU which was before we had uh, UALR, it was LRU. And so Dad had an LRU, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he was a double chemistry major. Dad, um, you know, walked to school uphill both ways in the snow kind of kind of guy. <laughs> but I think where he really amazed me was, you know, I've lived in 26 places in my life. Um, my dad was a, was a fast-tracking executive, and so every 18 months we moved. Um, either got a promotion or, or he, you know, he took on a new role at a new company or he got asked to go fix something. Dad was a startup guy. Um, so dad started pharmaceutical plants all over the world. The thing that amazed me about my dad, we were in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. We were there for like two years. And dad had been offered a job to move to Chicago. So this is, uh, he was moving with, he was with Abbott Labs and he was going to move to Chicago. And I got invited to go an away party. And, you know, I was 12 or 13 at the time. I don't remember exactly. I was probably 13. And so I got to go to the party and, you know, the pharmaceutical plants. So everybody's wearing hairnets, got lab coats on. They're, they're all, you know, everybody's. <laughs> and these people would come up to me and they would be bawling. And they would be like, do you know how great your dad is? And I was like, no, because my dad worked all the time. Now, my dad wasn't, like, completely a workaholic, but he was. Um, it, but I would ask, like, why is it? He goes, he says, he's the greatest leader you've ever seen. And, and my dad was the epitome of that, that servant leader, that, you know, he would be there on the floor at 4 o'clock in the morning with the team when something had to be done. He was the one that cared about people. I remember my dad told me this when he was 55. He retired at 55. He... He had been, uh, so so Pilkington Barnes Hines was the company he was working for. They made um, like eyeglass or contact eye solutions. They got bought by Allergan. And Allergan basically could pick whoever they wanted from the Pilkington. So they picked Dad. And they're like, we're keeping you. We're shutting the plant down. We would, we just want that brand. We don't really want the, the company. We don't want this plant. And my dad told us, he says, you know, my job over these last, you know, 30 years has been to start up companies and start up these new plants. And usually it involves shutting down another plant because I've laid over 5,000 people off in my career. I can't do it anymore. And so, son, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to retire. And I was like, you know, he's 55. I'm like, can you do that, Dad? Are you? He's like, yeah, we're okay. We're okay. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's just that, you know, that true, like, servant leader and and. My dad was never one for, I mean, I can remember my dad up at 4.30 every morning. And, you know, I can remember turning the TV set off. You know, Johnny Carson, I would always be the one because it'd be blaring in the bedroom. I'd turn it (laughs) off, you know, when I was in high school. But that just exemplify of leadership. Even when he was in his 70s, right, he used to get out of the farm and run a tractor. He he wasn't shy of work. And, um, And I think good day's work doesn't hurt any of us. And so I picked dad. Awesome. Well, and I do he have to like add an amazing that. person. Yeah, yeah. He, he is. Was. Was. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I do. I haven't said anything about my parents, but they did teach me to follow mm-hmm. through and very strong. Uh, taught me to be a very strong leader. My mom and dad are both very strong in their different areas. Mm-hmm. You know, I always 
um, just whatever you start, you finish. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Right. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you guys so yeah, much for you. being on this podcast. It was thank incredible. You. I think we all learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I I really appreciate y'all. And your chocolate. story and your yeah. chocolate <laughs> and all the chocolate we got. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Walton Biz Talk. And in the spirit of Halloween, don't forget about Kaya Chocolate. Our next episode will air on November 12th. Jesse and I are sitting down with MFA student Austin Dean Ashford, who has his own one-man off-Broadway show, Island Trap. You won't want to miss it.